I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 27. Blow Away. Trying. For nine months, we are a couple. That couple. The one that looks great together on Instagram. The one that has birthdays five days apart and at the same time blow out the candles on a giant creme brulee in a hipster bar on a trivia night while the waitress snaps a photo. It's all so perfect, I could die. But we're also trying to figure it all out. The relationship. It's so new to both of us, and we aren't that great at it at first. Even though we've been in love and circles for the past three years, now we're doing this thing, and the pressure is on. We act like we just met or something. We're shy and awkward. We make so many assumptions about each other, almost all wrong. This thing we're doing is bigger than us, and we make a million mistakes at it. We are not at ease in this thing. If you look behind the photo of us, smiling at our birthday candles on the creme brulee, you'd see that later that night, we had a huge bite. It was about mansplaining, if you must know. He mansplained, mansplaining to me, and I thought my head would explode. And it did, so much that I talked over him, interrupting, indignant, laying into him about the origins of the term, and not hearing what he was actually trying to say, that he'd originally misunderstood the term. He was trying to explain how wrong he'd been about it, not trying to explain that he was right. We had other arguments, too, about how much time we should spend together and when, about not hearing each other or not understanding. Relationship stuff. No big deal. These things are normal. They're just growing pains. Christmas Eve. We returned home from my cousin's house at 1 a.m., and White Shirt carried Birdie to her bed. Together, we put the little gifts in her stocking and then secretly slid gifts into each other's. Since the bomb, my stocking has just been a decoration hanging there empty for four Christmases. Now, here it was, filled with little shampoo bottles and chocolates again for the first time in forever. It was his first stocking in almost 20 years, 
he said. And he cried when he saw it. How I'd written his name in silver sparkles and fancy script. We went on trips together, because now he had flight privileges, and I did too, as his companion. We went to Miami Beach and Mexico. We got stranded in Charlottetown for five days in a snowstorm. It all felt so romantic, even if sometimes it was a struggle. We were doing it. The thing. Finally, the man with the white shirt and I were trying together. And then one spring night, my father and his lovely girlfriend hosted a dinner for White Shirt's parents. White Shirt, Bertie, and I were there too. I tried to dissuade him when he called to tell me about his plans for the dinner. Dad, I don't know if it's such a good idea. Why not? He shouted, because he always shout talks when someone disagrees with him. I had the scientist's parents over for dinner to meet them that time. Dad, that time was when we were getting married. This is not the same thing at all. White Shirt has only just decided he wants to try and be in a relationship. We don't even know if he can do that. This is going to scare him away. No one's getting scared away. It's just dinner. He was right. It was just dinner. But I still worried. I was already very close with White Shirt's parents. We texted, called each other, and sometimes made plans first and then just told White Shirt about them after. They treated Bertie like a granddaughter cooking her favorite dishes, and always bringing both of us gifts from the places they traveled. Since we started doing this thing, they told me more than once how happy they were that their son now had a great job, but also that he had me and Bertie in his life. They told me they loved me all the time. We were even planning to all take a trip to Portugal together in the summer. White shirt, Bertie and I, his parents, his sister, and her family, too. It was all I could talk about for months. When we go to Portugal, it's going to be so amazing. Your father says the sea is only 1.8 kilometers from their house. Will we have time to drive up to Porto, do you think? Oh, when we're in Lisbon, can we see all the funiculars? For the next trip, your dad and I decided Angola. I couldn't wait to see where the man with the white shirt was born, to be with him in the place he grew up, to see where he'd spent some of his teen years, to walk the streets with him, helping him to carry the load of memories, good and bad, the homeland of my love, the heavy and light of his heart. I started learning to speak Portuguese, practicing with his father as we played cards. I could read it okay, but my pronunciation was terrible. I studied it alone while White Shirt was gone on long sets of flights, writing out the words and practicing the difficult pronunciation out loud. 
I wanted to surprise him when we got to Portugal with how much I'd learned to say in his first language. Anyway, my dad and his girlfriend got along wonderfully with White Shirt's parents, the four of them speaking in a mishmash of languages, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, English. There was wine and food and laughter and the promise of another dinner, this time hosted by White Shirt's parents. That dinner happened only a month later, the seven of us again, like a family, like a thing I'd only dreamed of having again one day. A dream, really, to see my dad so thrilled about using every single glass from his cristalera. To see White Shirt's mom and my dad's lovely girlfriend compare jewelry and recipes in high-pitched and heavily accented voices. To look across the room and see the man with the white shirt and Birdie, deep in their own conversation and world. To sit there and feel loved and fed and alive. Noite, lenta adormecida. Noite, sempre agrada. Onde os amantes se abrigam. A few weeks later, we're in my car, and I said we should buy the plane tickets for the trip to Portugal soon. He makes a strange face. A grimace, maybe. A tightening. But I soldier on, chatting about how I couldn't wait to finally be there with him after all the times he'd gone without me, reminding him how he would always come back from his trips to Portugal with the most perfect little gifts for me, and how he'd tell me how much he missed me while he was there, how everything made him think of me. Finally, I'll be there with you, I say, but he's silent, not excited at all. I press him about it, and with an exhale, he tells me he finds it difficult to get excited about the trip, because he's worried about us arguing while we're there. You're worried about a fight we might have two months from now? It seems absolutely ridiculous to me, but it isn't ridiculous to him. He's serious. He really is paralyzed by the thought of us maybe arguing on vacation two months from now. I can't understand it. Where was this coming from? As we drive, we talk it through some more. And I'm happy we're working stuff out. Relationship stuff. But when we get to his place, he says, I can't do this. I can't do it. It isn't right. Just like that. He says, we argue too much 
I love you so much, and I wanted this to work so badly, but I can't do it. It isn't right. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Flying. A few days later, I returned to ask him if he's sure. Sure. And he says he is. We both cry and kiss and talk, and somewhere in all of that, I just fall asleep. Right there in his apartment, in the middle of us talking, my entire body just shuts down at 8 p.m. I wake up at 8 a.m. to the sound of him getting ready for work as quietly as possible, and everything feels normal for a second until I remember it isn't normal at all. It's over. When he comes into the room, I sit up and say, I'll drive you to the airport. And he says, okay. He looks so handsome in his suit and I hate him for it because everything will be easier for him going forward because he is a man and a handsome, charming one at that. Because men don't lose cachet or power as they age and I was aging myself out of love by the millisecond. I drive him to the airport in a heavy silence. Gardner Expressway, Highway 427, Airport Road, Terminal 3. Normally, I love this route. Ever since he got the airline job, it's been nothing but pleasure for me to drive him to the airport, or better, to be there to pick him up. On this morning, though, I'm taking the same route without pleasure, just a boulder in my gut. This again. I pull over at the usual spot on the departures level, somewhere between taxis and hotel shuttles and frazzled people spilling out of minivans. Our usual routine has always been this. I get out of the car with him and wait patiently as he removes his luggage from the trunk and arranges it just so, in his meticulous manner. Once perfect, He'd adjust his suit jacket and airport tags, 
smile, and pull me into his body, giving me the kind of hug that feels like a thousand hugs in the scent of summer. What? That's how they feel, okay? This time, I stay in my seat, my hands on the wheel. I hear him taking the luggage out, then arranging it just so. In the rearview mirror, I see him adjust his jacket and tags. And then his face, so sad, through the passenger window, my name coming quietly out of his lips, an angry horn blast behind us, and a string of swears shouted in another language. I turn to look at him. I love you, he says. I say, goodbye, and drive away. I don't cry on Airport Road, or Highway 427, or even the Gardner Expressway. I just watch the road, and the cars, and the lake as it comes into view, sparkling in the sunlight as if nothing's happened, as if everything hasn't changed. I don't cry until I reach the elevator in my parking garage. As soon as the door's shut, I'm a fire hose of sorrow. At street level, a guy gets in the elevator and looks afraid. Are you okay? He barely asks. I say, no. And he looks at the ground. In my apartment, I don't know what to do. I don't know how this was a thing, and now it's not a thing. I don't know how I can be back at the beginning. After an hour of crying, I get a second wind, a new wind. I decide on the spot to swap my bedroom and Bertie's. I work steadily for six hours straight. I dismantle all the furniture in her room and pull it all out into the main part of the apartment. I dismantle my furniture and drag it out. I take every piece of clothing out of each closet and swap them. I take down every photo, piece of art, and knick-knack. I make a huge mess and scrape my leg and hit my head and strain every muscle. There are so many holes in all the walls. I make new problems where old problems were. The place is a fucking disaster. But at least it stopped me from crying. At least this was something I could control. I can't control that night after night, I drunkenly call him, crying. Shouting at him for being immature and callous. Or pleading with him to come back to me, to us. Where I cry about the family trip to Portugal that will never be, and get angry about concert tickets I already bought for us, as if that matters. Where I mule, the summer though, we were supposed to have the summer. What about the summer? Like, summer is a thing I've never had before and never will. I'm so fucking dramatic, but it hurts, okay? He says he still loves me, but he doesn't know shit about love. The ex-husband and I, that was love. We had nothing in common, and we fought, but we fought fair. 
knowing that with love comes war sometimes, and in that war, there were rules of engagement. We knew that every argument didn't mean we weren't right. Every bump in the road didn't have to mean the end. We fought like anyone else does, because people fight. White Shirt doesn't know what love is because he's never really let himself find out. He always retreats. I just want to keep going. Forward march. Because against all odds, he came to me that August night as the outlier. Even though he dropped the bomb on me, and our marriage and family and turned into a huge asshole at the end, the ex-husband and I were as real and true as it gets. He knew what he wanted and he knew how to love. At the very least, he knew how. Recovery. I guess I like the ocean in times of crisis. Since we aren't going to Portugal anymore, I've chosen to go in the opposite direction. For the first time together, Bertie and I go to the Pacific Coast, to British Columbia, and my older brother. For 12 days, we stare at the Pacific. We hike through mountain forests in the mornings and spend each afternoon at a different beach. It's hot and lovely here, but it's no Portugal. Still, it's good to be with my brother and his girlfriend, who feels like a sister to me, as well as her two daughters, my two nephews, and their girlfriends. They're all one big intermingled family here, in two homes, always texting each other, popping by, everyone hanging out together, always. A raucous bunch of young adults, my loud brother, his awesome girlfriend, and so much laughter. It feels good to be around this much energy in life, to be witness to the love and madness so different than the quiet two-person life Bertie and I have back at our apartment in Toronto. So different from this small town on the West Coast, where everyone seems to know everyone, and deer walk down the street. Bertie's having a great time, and so am I. But I'm also deeply, deeply sad. Not because British Columbia isn't Portugal, but because I was more in love with the man with the white shirt than I even realized. There was a future, I'd imagined, and now it would stay that way, lingering as imagination only, never materializing. And so I cry a lot, or stare at the ocean a lot. I talk with my brother a lot about our crazy family, about heartbreak, about children and relationships and soccer and coffee and what we're going to eat for the next three meals and how we're going to cook it. I'm actually relieved to be here, 5,000 kilometers from home, 
here with my big brother, who's gruff sometimes, but also really funny and kind and laughs so hard his blue eyes disappear into tiny slits. Those same blue eyes comfort me when we're both up early each morning, sitting in the kitchen talking. He hands me a coffee in a Spider-Man mug I bought him when I was still a teenager. A deer runs through the backyard. The man with the white shirt loves Spider-Man, I say, and my brother rolls his eyes and changes the subject to something funny, which is his way of saying, I know, I know it's hard. And he makes me perfect little pancakes that we eat while planning the next three meals. While on this trip, Bertie and I talk a lot about what's happened between me and the man with the white shirt. What it means. She's very concerned. Well, mostly she has one concern. Are you guys in an argument? Or can I still see him? I tell her we're not in an argument. We love each other, and he loves her. But being in a relationship with me just isn't right for him. I tell her I'm sad. No kidding, Mom. And that's why I've been crying so much. I thought so. But assure her we are still friends and will always be friends. I'm sorry you're so sad, Mom, she says. But I'm really glad I'll still be able to see him. I try to imagine what that will be like. How it will work. How now I will have to further divide my time with her. On the last day of our trip, early in the morning, my brother drives us to the ferry that will take us to the airport that will take us back home. He waits with us until the ferry arrives, gives Bertie and I a no-nonsense hug, and turns to go. My heart sinks a little as I watch him leave. I wish we didn't live 5,000 kilometers apart. I wish we lived close enough for me to walk over to his place and have a coffee in an old Spider-Man cup. The salt air whips through our hair as we stand on the deck of the giant ocean ferry, watching my brother's town slowly disappear from view. I drink coffee, and we eat the snacks he packed for us. We laugh and talk, and it's easy to forget she's a child sometimes, now that she's ten and almost as tall as me, and is cool and easy to travel with. Everything's going to be okay, Bird, I say. And she says, Uh, yeah, Mom, obviously. Everything's going to be great. You're listening to Alone, a love story, written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC podcast. The story editor is Mark Apollonio. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Mark here in our hometown of Toronto. Head over to cbc.ca slash alone. If you can believe it, I still have a lot more to say about each episode. 
More stories, a lot about music, and photos, too. You can also find me on Twitter at AloneCBC. Stick with me. It's time for the final chapter of Alone, a Love Story. I mean, not the final final because it's my life, but... <laughs> for more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.